Hello everyone, I am Andy and this is UFOs and Other Paranormal Stuff. I hope that you're all set for the Christmas period. Hopefully this one is going to be better than last year's. Wasn't, a, uh, wasn't the greatest last year, was it? Before we get on with today's episode, uh, just a few things to say. Uh, first of all, thank you very much to everybody that has emailed me. Uh, sorry if I haven't replied to everything. Um, it, well, work has been very stupidly busy this week. As you can imagine, getting close to Christmas, it, it would do, wouldn't it? I imagine everyone's busy at this time of year. Second of all, if you haven't done already, and if you're still looking for those little bits for your Christmas or New Year's party or birthday parties, uh, take a look at greatdanes.uk. They sell everything that you could want for any party, for every occasion basically. Everything that you could ever need, but with a Danish twist to it. Now, you'll remember a few weeks ago, I think it was, I uh, put out a special breaking news episode uh, about lights in the sky spotted by a lot of people around Bromley, Orpington, sort of the, uh, well, North Kent, Mid Kent area. Well, apparently, and according to the, the newspapers in Kent, the same sort of thing was seen yesterday. Lots of flashing lights in the sky. I'll go into that in another episode, though. I think it's getting to need a full episode on its own, all these sightings in Kent. With that in mind, ladies and gentlemen, wherever you live, whether it be Kent or anywhere in the world, do send me your stories of UFOs or anything paranormal related, anything mysterious. Uh, UFOs and other paranormal stuff at gmail.com is the email that you need to send it to. That's UFOs and other paranormal stuff at gmail.com. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, on with today's episode. I'm pretty sure many people would have heard about the subject that we're going to talk about today, especially if you live in Australia. For this event took place on a beach near Glenelg in southwest Adelaide in southern Australia. It is known as the Tamam Shud case, more popularly known, however, as the case of the Somerton Man. It is one of the most intriguing and baffling as well as intricate cases of unidentified people that there has ever been. So here it goes. At 6.30 on the morning of the 1st of December 1948, the police were contacted as a body of a man had been found lying almost leisurely on Somerton Park Beach near Glenelg in southwest Adelaide, southern Australia, and it was found by two jockeys out exercising their horses on the beach. The man was lying with his back and head resting against the sea wall, with his legs extended and his feet crossed. He was in fact dead. But who was this man, and what had killed him? While both of those questions hold a lot of mystery and, of course, importance, it is the former that holds the interest of many people around the globe because even now authorities do not know who this well-dressed man found on Somerton Beach was. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it is still now in 2021 marked as an unsolved case. Now, some people would think, OK, we don't know who it is, let's move on. Case closed. But 
The mystery surrounding the investigations into finding out Somerton Man's identity are very in-depth, twisty and hugely intriguing too. Somerton Man, with his receding red hair combed backwards, was wearing a white shirt with red and blue tie and knitted brown pullover, grey and brown double-breasted jacket and brown leather shoes. A half-smoked cigarette was lying on the right collar of his coat, very near to the man's face. But there was no sign of burns, which suggests that the cigarette had gone out before it had fallen out of his mouth. A search of his pockets, undertaken by police constable John Moss, found an unused second-class train ticket for a journey from Adelaide to Henley Beach. A bus ticket from the city, no one knows if that ticket was used or not, a US-made narrow aluminium comb, a half-empty packet of juicy fruit gum, an army club cigarette packet which contained some cigarettes of a different brand, Kensitas, and a quarter-full box of Brian and May matches. There was no damage to the body, no sign of injuries, and the sand nearby seems undisturbed too. John Moss also notes how clean the shoes of this man are, considering that this is a sandy beach. Sometime later, the body was put into an ambulance and taken away to the Royal Adelaide Hospital, where Dr John Bennett waits to meet the ambulance with Somerton Man inside. The doctor judges that the man died eight hours previous. That would give his time of death at around two to three o'clock that day. He also suspected a possible coronal seizure as the cause of death, but is unable to ascertain exactly how he died. While there, John Moss bags up the items that were found with the body, which included clothing. He notices that most of the labels were cut out from the clothes, a practice undertaken by people who work in clandestine industries such as the secret services, spies, etc., Moss's work now complete, the task of identifying Somerton Man falls now to Detective Sergeant Lionel Lean of the Adelaide Metropolitan Police. It is he who has to now oversee the investigation. Later that evening, Lean's department receives a phone call from Sergeant Fennig of Glenelg Police Station. Apparently Fennig has a strong lead as to the man's identity, the caller believes it to be the 55-year-old Edward Cecil Johnson, who has recently gone missing from his home in Paynham in Adelaide. Edward Johnson had a fractured elbow and a partially missing finger, and so Fennick passes that information on to Lionel Lean's team so that they can use that information to help identify the body. The next morning, a constable Sutherland oversees the autopsy performed by pathologist Dr Dwyer. They both see that the man's hands all have five fingers intact and can now rule out that this body belonged to Edward Johnson. However, the autopsy, which lasted over two hours, continues and something very unexpected was about to be revealed. The body is in good physical condition. He's 5'11 in height and estimated to be around 45 years of age. 
He is clean, has clipped toe and fingernails too, which goes against any of the first suspicions that the police had that this man may have been a vagrant or a drunk. He does have some teeth missing though, but he is also broad and quite muscular for a man of his age. His pupils are unevenly dilated, as if to suggest that as the man died, his eyes were reacting to something maybe quite bright. The doctor found sand in Somerton man's hair, but not in his nostrils or in his mouth. This would suggest that the man had not been on the beach for that long before he had died. Dwyer, like Bennett, suspected an issue with the man's heart had led to his death. He found that there was congestion of blood in all major organs. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a sure sign of heart failure. But hold on. When Dwyer inspected the heart, he found that it was in a healthy condition and felt firm to the touch, like that of a younger man. Dr. Dwyer is even more surprised when upon examining the stomach, he finds blood inside. This could indicate a very different cause of death of Somerton's mystery man. Dwyer suspects that the man's death was not natural and thinks that he may have been poisoned. There is no evidence to show that poison was ingested and so the doctor thinks that maybe a needle may have been used to inject poison into the man, yet he finds no puncture wounds that would back that up. He does find some abrasions on one of the man's hands. Later on that day, Sutherland delivers tissue, blood and urine samples to the State Government Department of Chemistry in Adelaide. Dr Robert Cowan takes these samples and will test them for cyanides, alkaloids, barbiturates and carbolic acids. Next morning, Lean, while reading a newspaper, comes across an article about two spies who have been arrested after being captured in the British zone of Vienna in Austria. He continues to the next page where a headline reads Dead Man Still Unidentified. Lean is hopeful that this article will get the police the help that they need to find more information on the identity of the Somerton man. Lean, now at work, tells his team of Dr Dwyer's autopsy report and tells the team to consider suicide or possible homicide as a cause of death. He also wanted the team to step up their efforts to find the man's identity ASAP. With that in mind, case packs which included photographs of the body, fingerprints, descriptions, reports and other information were compiled and sent out to all major police headquarters throughout Australia. From those headquarters, the information was duplicated and sent out to all other police stations. Of course, this being the 1940s, there were no computers and of course no internet available, so this would have taken quite some time to do. Due to the huge casualties of war, Australia began a policy of populate or perish. That meant that well over 100,000 people migrated to the country to take up jobs and to help Australia get back up and running again. The government of the time hoped that many of those who would migrate would be from Britain, 
but because of the effects of war on on that country in Britain, they never came in the anticipated numbers. However, many did come from across Eastern and Southern Europe instead. By the end of the day, more than 20 people had called into the police station in response to the Dead Man Still Identified article from the morning's newspaper. One call stands out from the rest. That call is from Brian Joseph Dietmar, who says that he thinks the man found on the beach is an old acquaintance of his called Jack Thomas McLean, who worked at the docks in Adelaide with Dietmar one and a half years ago. Dietmar also stated that he wouldn't put much money on that being the name because of the worker turnover in the docks in those days meant that so many different people worked there throughout the years and he couldn't remember each one of his names. Dietmar said that McLean was a man who could handle himself if necessary and said that he had gotten himself into a few situations throughout the years. Dietmar went with the police to perform an identification of the body. He confirms that the body is that of Jack McLean, but then states that he had last seen McLean four years ago, not one and a half years ago, as he previously stated. Now though, Lionel Lean has a name. He gets in touch with the Central Investigative Bureau of New South Wales to see if there is any record of this name, Jack Thomas McLean. The Bureau gets back to the team with a positive hit. Have they got their man? No. The name is not Jack Thomas McLean. It is William Edward Price. Despite the positive ID given by Dietmar, Price or McLean had brown eyes instead of grey as those found on the man and only measured 5 foot 6 in height. Disappointingly, the team are back to square one. Many people visit the police station and the cemetery to see if the body may be that of lost relatives of theirs. Leads that all of these people create are followed up by the police, but unfortunately, they all come to nothing. Because the case is going on a lot longer than anyone had wanted, the decision was taken to have the body embalmed, and on the 10th of December, at the mortuary, that process is begun. Three weeks later, every newspaper in Australia had published pictures of Somerton Man. All boarding houses and hotels in Adelaide have been scoured for information and the case files that had been created and updated since going out to the police HQs had also now been sent out to all English-speaking countries in the world. Efforts were really being made to find this man's identity. Dr Cowan had completed his chemical reports and on the 22nd of December delivered it to the CIB. He found no evidence of poisoning. All of the common poisons that Cowan had tested for would have left a clear trace in the body. However, he did go on to say that if a poison had been used, it would have been very, very rare poison, difficult to get hold of. It would be highly unlikely that anyone wanting to commit suicide would have gone to the lengths necessary to get hold of that type of poison. Cowan also stated 
that it may have been a simple heart failure that had caused the death of this man after all. But Lionel Lean is not convinced that it was a heart issues, as if it was a heart attack, there was no sign of struggle. But, ladies and gentlemen, why does nobody know who he is? As the year goes from 1948 to 1949, things start to look up for the investigation. A woman walks into a police station in a small town 160 kilometres away from Adelaide. As well as a small black and white photograph, she has a copy of the newspaper dated from the 2nd of January 1949. The front page carried the picture of Somerton Man. The woman, Elizabeth Thompson, showed the picture of the man to the person at the front desk at the uh, police station and declared that he was a former friend of hers, 63-year-old woodcutter named Robert Walsh, also known as Nugget. Her small black and white photograph, taken some years ago, shows Walsh and Thompson together. Detective Harvey, back in Adelaide, also receives an anonymous message from a caller who had seen the picture of the man in the newspaper that morning. He identified the man as a former colleague of his, also called Nugget. A few days later, Elizabeth Thompson called Stanley Salotti, who had worked at Port Adelaide and was Robert Walsh's employer, when Walsh was staying at Thompson's house. Salotti, too, is convinced that Somerton Man is Robert Walsh. He accompanies Elizabeth to the morgue, where they both make a formal identity of the body as being that of Robert Walsh, Nugget. Thompson and Salotti are then taken to be interviewed by Constable Harry Storch. Thompson explains that she first met Walsh just under 10 years ago when he was looking for a place to stay. She says that he was about 64 years old back then. She stated that Walsh told her that he came from Wales and he had fallen out with relatives that he had there. He left lodging with Elizabeth just over one year ago in 1947. He went to visit Brisbane. Salotti had last seen Walsh just over 18 months ago, watching horse racing at the Victoria Park Racecourse, he had suspicions that Walsh was indeed a gambling man. The next day, a storeman who also worked at Port Adelaide visited the detective's office and identified Somerton Man. The storeman, Jack Hanan, identified him as someone that he had met at another racecourse. Hanan also identified the man as Nugget but also stated to police that the man's full name was Bob, or Robert, Morgan. Quite a Welsh-sounding name to me. A year after that, Hanan bumped into Morgan again at the local train station. Morgan was in need of accommodation, and so Hanan put in a good word at the boarding house he was living in, and soon Morgan moved in. Both men became good friends while there, and it was during one night of friendly drinking and chat that Bob Morgan revealed that sometimes he goes by the name of Nugget McCarthy, and also by the name of Robert Walsh. Jack Hannan went on to describe his friend Nugget as being in his late 40s, about 5 foot 8 tall, and with a tattoo on his right forearm. Storch stopped Hanan saying, Did you say he had a tattoo? 
Hanan said, yes, a faint outline of Australia. Storch and Hanan go to the morgue where the latter identifies the man as Bob Morgan. However, there is no evidence of any tattoo on his forearms. Another call, this time made to Middleton Police Station, stated another man identifies Somerton Man as Robert Walsh, but also said that all his Walsh's belongings should go to Elizabeth Thompson in the event of his death. Another different caller rang with the same message. The department decided that this may have been a scam and so did not follow up on those calls. Shortly after Elizabeth Thompson had first visited the police back on that early January day, another entirely separate lead was about to come to light. Again, this happened after seeing the picture in the morning newspaper. A man identified Somerton Man this time as Ray Clark. He described Clark as being in his late 30s with reddish hair, 5 foot 10 tall, and with a few missing teeth. Apparently Clark had been a boxer some years previously. All seemed like a very good description so far. But the detectives really sat up and listened when the man told them how he met Clark. He stated that they both work for the Commonwealth Department of Parks and Interior at Woomera. Woomera in South Australia is the place where the British and Australian governments developed a top-secret rocket testing facility. Ray Clark had helped to build it. Of course, Lionel Lean is now deeply concerned as his possible murder victim had access to a top-secret nuclear rocket facility. And even though the World War had finished, this was now the time of the Cold War. Just like others before him, this man was escorted by police to the morgue to make a formal identification. He identified Somerton Man as Ray Clark. Next day, the Adelaide advertiser named Ray Clark as the name of the man who the police have been looking to identify. That very same evening, yet another man who says that he worked with Ray Clark is also escorted to the morgue, but he states that the body is not that of Ray Clark. A week later, a letter from one of the surveyors at the construction of the Woomera facility arrives at the police station. The letter states that the likeness and description of Somerton Man resembles the Ray Clark that he knew. This man stated that Clark used a different name on his driving licence but was unable to remember what it was. Unfortunately, the police were unable to gather enough evidence to formally identify the man. The detectives are starting to think that there was something they may have missed, a clue that they did not see or lead that they have not yet pursued. And it is then that Lionel Lean makes a big discovery. Have you done your Christmas shopping yet? Are you still looking for that special something for that special someone? That extra ingredient for a great Christmas dinner, party or drink? Are you looking for the thing that will make Christmas even better this year? 
If so, then look no further than Great Danes UK. Great Danes UK has everything you need to make Christmas go with a Scandinavian bang. Cozy and comfortable footwear. George Jensen designed jewellery. Eva Solo designed homeware. Candles, cups, mugs, clocks, scarves, lights, gadgets, pet accessories, bags, bimble and bumble, toys, eyewear, Christmas decorations, everything you could ever want and with an unmatched beautiful Danish design. Don't forget the food and drink, salty chocolate licorice, Tom's turtle advent calendar, the vintage food grocery box, remoulade, glob mix and much more. And why not wash it all down with a nice Allborg Jubileum Aquavit, Gammeldank Stram, Blomberg Mulled Wine, Tuborg Classic and Gold Beer, Carlsberg Black Gold Beer and a soft drink for the kids. For worldwide deliveries, visit the website greatdanes.uk and get your order in today. There's also Lego of course. Great Danes, gr8danes.uk Always drink responsibly. For T's and C's, please visit the website. Lean sees the train ticket, looks at it, runs to the telephone and calls Adelaide Railway Station. He asks the station staff to check the luggage, check for any unclaimed luggage or bags that were checked into prior to the 1st of December. He turned to his team, who appear startled at this sudden rush from their leader. That goes for every single left luggage department, he says. Every boarding house, train, tram, bus and cab station and depot received phone calls from the Adelaide CIB as they searched for the item that may have belonged to the unknown Somerton man. The newspapers run the same appeal a few days later. Then a breakthrough. The staff at Adelaide station find something that appears to have been checked in on November the 30th. The porter, Harold North, took Lean into a cloakroom at the station and to the ticket with number G52703 on it. It is attached to a medium-sized brown leather case. He hands it to Lionel Lean. Lean noted that some stickers indicating destinations have been removed from the bag's exterior. He opens the lid and finds some nicely folded clothes and implements that Lean did not know what they were used for. Some of the clothes inside are identical to those found on Somerton Man when he was found on the beach that morning. He looks for any sign of documentation but finds nothing. The material of the identical shirt and trousers match those that Somerton Man was wearing when he died. All of the clothes had their labels removed too. However, a few of the items had the name Keen written on them. Lean thinks nothing of this though. The implements found were a small screwdriver, table knife, stencil brush and a pair of scissors. Lean found out that these implements were used for stenciling. He spoke to a tailor about the items and the tailor stated that he thinks the clothes were made in the United States of America. However, the fingerprints that the team had sent to America had failed to show up on the FBI database, meaning that any possible lead that they may uncover did now not exist. All international police departments that the Adelaide police had sent information to had replied with the same information. There was no record anywhere of this Somerton man.
After the excitement of finding the case at the station, by April the man is still unidentified. No more documentation had come to light. John Burton Cleland, from the University of Adelaide, and a renowned Australian naturalist, microbiologist, mycologist, ornithologist and professor of pathology at the University of Adelaide, offered his assistance in the case of identifying Somerton Man. He took the case notes, the case and its contents and got to work. He soon comes to the conclusion that Somerton Man had not died of natural causes at all. He finds barley grass in the trousers that were in the case and in one of the socks too. Cleland does confirm that the case and the items inside all belong to the dead man, but is unable to add anything more. But then he checks the trousers again and finds a maker's mark and number inside. This leads the team of detectives to a manufacturer based on Brunswick Street in Melbourne. Unfortunately, it is found that they make nearly 3,000 pairs of similar trousers each week. Tracing the name of the buyer would have been impossible. Cleland is very disappointed that his work does not help the team of police to find the buyer of the trousers. But then he finds a small unexpected bump in the waistband of the trousers. Here is where things start to get really interesting. He puts his fingers inside the waistband and found a small rolled up piece of paper with some writing on it. The two words written on the small piece of paper was Tamam Shud. The team of detectives are completely stumped as to what Tamam Shud could possibly mean. Professor Cleland has no idea either. They try and try to find out the meaning of the words. No internet, of course, in those days, remember, and no Wikipedia to help them. That is until Frank Kennedy, one of Adelaide Advertiser's journalists, hears about the finding and instantly recognises those words. He calls one of the detectives and tells them that he has seen Tamam Shud written down in some poetry. That volume of poetry is the almost legendary Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. Omar Khayyam was a Persian mathematician and astronomer. He lived in the 12th century. He was a poet too, but nobody really knew that back then. Edward Fitzgerald translated Omar Khayyam's work in 1859 and published it together as the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. The literal translation of Tamam Shad is finished or ended quite spooky. The Rubaiyat wasn't too popular then after the translation, but some 20 years later in the 1870s, when the pre-Raphaelites got hold of it, its popularity rose considerably. The Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam is said to have become legendary when rumours started to circulate that the original manuscript had been on board the RMS Titanic when it went down in April 1912. Some conspiracy theorists said that the actual wording in the original manuscript was some sort of curse which led to the sinking of the great ship. Some of that story became the subject of a book, Samarkand, written by Amin Malouf in 1988. 
There was, however, a more provable link between the book and the great liner, a jewel-encrusted copy of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, made in 1911 by Sangorsky and Sutcliffe in London, was won at an auction at Sotheby's Auction House on the 29th of March 1912 for £405 back then. It was won by Gabriel Weiss, who was an American. He had the book shipped to New York City on the RMS Titanic. The book, like the ship, did not make the crossing, and it lies lost at the bottom of the sea. Back to our case, though. This finding was extraordinary. Detective Len Brown, who Kennedy had contacted immediately, left the office and ran down to the local bookstore, taking the small piece of paper with him. He found a Collins Press first edition version of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam and took it off the shelf, rifling through the pages. And of course, he found that the last words written in the book were indeed... Tamam Shod. He checked the writing in the piece of paper against those written in the book. It was a perfect match. The detectives speak to the librarian who is able to help them find the literal translation of the words Tamam Shod. The team goes into sixth gear, racing around all the bookshops in Adelaide and contacting as many bookshops, libraries and book distribution centres in Australia to find any copy of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam with the last two words, Tamam Shud, ripped out. Unfortunately, the search comes to nothing. Given the amount of time that has passed since his death, Summerton Man's body is beginning to break down and disintegrate. The police are left with no other option than to bury the body and give the man his eternal rest. But because the case is still open, the detectives still need to find an identity for this man. They bring in local taxidermist Paul Lawson to make a plaster cast of the head and the upper torso, so that if anyone should have a memory jogged in the future, they can still come and make a formal identification. Summerton Man is finally laid to rest at 0949 on 14th of June 1949. The South Australian Grandstand Bookmakers Association paid for the service to save him from being given a pauper's funeral. And police and Adelaide advertiser reporters were his pallbearers. The funeral was kept secret to prevent mass crowds gathering. The event was strangely sombre, as Summerton Man was laid to rest with no family or friends in attendance. His headstone in Adelaide's West Terrace Cemetery reads, Here lies the unknown man who was found at Summerton Beach on the 1st of December 1948. The headstone was a gift from the local stonemason, Mr A. Collins. The inquest a few days later concludes that the man had likely died of unnatural causes. The man's bust was placed at the South Australian Museum. The detectives continued their search for the ever so important Rubaiyat, but it was hard for them not to think that they had come to the end of the road with this case. The line was drawn under the investigation. That was until something extraordinary appears. One weekend in July, 
a man by the name of Ronald Francis, who lives on Jetty Road in Glenelg, is reading the newspaper article about the police searching for a book with a torn-out back page. He suddenly remembers a road trip that his wife had taken with his brother and his wife back in 1948. Ronald went to have a look inside his Hillman Minx car and placed in the glove box was the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. Francis goes straight to the back page to find that the page is indeed ripped, with a big piece of it missing. It seems that there is also something written inside the back of the book that looks like a telephone number. Apparently the book had been found in the car under the seat by Ronald's brother and he placed it into the glove box thinking that it belonged to Ronald. Francis brings the book to Lionel Lean who finds that the ripped out piece of paper is an exact match to the ripped part of the book. They clear Ronald Francis of any involvement and confirm his story and get to work analysing the book. When they place the book under ultraviolet light, they find not one, but two telephone numbers. Underneath those numbers, they find something extremely weird indeed. Five rows of letters written out in a sequence unrecognisable to the detectives. The second line is crossed out. There is an X written over an O in the fourth line. One of the officers said that it looked like a foreign language, but he was countered by another officer who said, no, it looks more like a code. The code reads W-R-G-O-A-B-A-B-D. Second line, M. L I A O I Third line W T B I M P A N E T P Fourth line X Fifth line M L I A B O A I A Q C Sixth line I T T M-T-S-A-M-S-T-G-A-B It must be said, however, that it is unclear whether the first letter is a W or M. It has been widely taken to be a W. And the I in the second line might in fact be an L, but there's a line going through it, so it is impossible to tell. The telephone numbers are more easily deciphered. One is for a bank. The other is for a residential property in Mosley Street, Glenelg, which, strangely, runs directly off Jetty Road. The address on Mosley Street is right next to where Ronald Francis keeps his car. Detective Evel Caney, who had traced the telephone numbers, made his way to the house to speak to its resident. It was located only a few minutes' walk away from where Somerton Man had been found back in 1948. Caney knocks on the door. The woman who answers the door introduces herself as Jessica Thompson. She is in complete shock that her telephone number is linked with the Somerton Man case, but she is happy to answer Caney's questions. She worked as a nurse after completing training in Sydney and she lived in this house in Adelaide with her husband and their little son, 
Robin. Kaney asks one last time at the end of the interview if she can think of anything that may be of any significance at all to the case. Then she suddenly remembers that some years ago she had met a soldier during the war while she was training to be a nurse. She had given him a copy of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam before he had shipped out again. The soldier tried to contact her after the war had ended, but the now Mrs Thompson wrote back telling him that it's better that they don't speak, as she is now married. She said that the man's name was Alfred Boxall, and she gave Kaney the address of where she sent the letter. Kaney reads Thompson the string of letters of code found in the book. Jessica has no idea what they might mean. Kaney suggests that Mrs. Thompson comes down to the station to make a formal statement for the case and to take a look at the plaster cast of the man. As Kaney left, he asked Jessica if she had ever gone by any other names. She replied, yes. She was often known as Justin. Back at the office, Lionel Lean is starting to think, because of Jessica's rejection of Boxall and Boxall's link to the Rubaiyat, that they may have finally found their man. Maybe it had just been a case of suicide after all. On the 26th of June 1949, detectives Lionel Lean and Evel Caney escorted Jessica Thompson to the South Australian Museum and to the bust of the Somerton Man. The detectives watch with bated breath while Thompson looks at the plaster cast. Lean describes her reaction upon seeing the cast as completely taken aback to the point of giving the appearance that she was about to faint. Have the police finally gotten the result they've been waiting so long for? Jessica stands back and averts her eyes to the floor. She does not raise them for the rest of the time in the museum. When Lean asks if she is okay, Thompson says that she is. He asks the all-important question, have you seen this man before? And with a small pause, Jessica answers, no, I have not. A few days later, Boxall's last known address had been tracked to a property in Maroubra in Sydney. He is found alive and well. When he is interviewed by the Sydney CIB, he confirms Jessica's story when she gave him the copy of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. He even shows the police the copy, which has the signature inside the front cover, made by Justin. It seems that there is no luck with the code either. Even the finest code breakers in the land could not break this code. The police, now desperate, release the code to the press, in a hope that someone can break it. At the time of broadcasting this podcast episode, no one has been able to break the code. It is said that both amateur and super sleuths and code breakers, including those of GCHQ, MI5, MI6, as well as the FBI and the CIA, have failed to break the code left in the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. Further investigations show that Alfred Boxall's wartime engineers unit had been a little more than it had said on the tin. It had been involved in intelligence gathering too. A 2014 episode of 60 Minutes, 
shows Kate Thompson, the daughter of Jessica Thompson, telling the interviewer that her mother did indeed know the man who was found at the beach that summer's morning in December 1948, and that she was just being evasive or did not want to talk about it as apparently the identity of the man was also known by others who had authority higher than that of the police force. Interest in the case of the unknown man and his identity is still rife, even now in the 21st century. In 2009, Professor Derek Abbott of the University of Adelaide attempted to solve the case using more modern technology to crack the code and get the DNA from the body to help identify it. Decryption of the code started from scratch and it had determined that the letter frequency was different from the letters written down at random. The format of the code appeared to follow the quatrain, a stanza of four lines, especially one having alternate rhymes, which supports the theory that the code was a one-time pad encryption algorithm. Another investigation had shown that Somerton Man's autopsy reports from 1948 and 1949, as well as the Bar Smith's library collection of Professor Cleland's notes, contained nothing on the case. An examination of the ears of Somerton Man found that his simba, the upper hollow of the ear, is larger than the lower ear hollow, known as the cavern. This is something that only affects 1-2% of the Caucasian population. Further to that, a check with some dental experts has concluded that Somerton Man also had hypodontia of both lateral incisors. Only 2% of the world's population has this disorder. Hypodontia is defined as the developmental absence of one or more teeth. Surely it can't be just plain coincidence then that Jessica Thompson's son, Robin, also had the very same larger ear simba than Cavum and hypodontia too, can it? chances that this was a coincidence has been estimated at 1 in 20 million. Some media outlets have suggested that Robin Thompson, 16 months old in 1948, may have been a child of Boxall or the Somerton Man and passed off as a child of Thompson and her husband. DNA would confirm or eliminate this speculation. Abbott believes an exhumation of the body and autosomal DNA test be performed so to help the identification of the body. In May 2021, an exhumation was carried out, but even then, there was something a little strange happened. The remains were not where they were thought to have been. For some unknown reason, the remains were found deeper down than they would have normally been. DNA has been taken from the remains of the Somerton man and in light of the technology now available to us that was not there in 1940s or the 1950s, it is expected that results will come in the next one to two years, if at all. The complete list of names linked with the identity of Somerton man currently numbers 29. From those already named in this podcast to those to others named since the man was buried. Names from different countries around the world, from America, Britain, even the USSR and the Baltic states. Who knows if we will ever find the identity of the Somerton man. 
It would, of course, be nice for some answers to finally come, but also wouldn't it be nice for the mystery to continue? So there you have it. What do you think about that? Does anyone else know the identity of Somerton Man? If you do, tell me, but also tell the Adelaide police. This has been a very interesting and intricate episode to research, and I've had to use other sources uh, for that research, so I'd like to say a big thank you to Wikipedia, Richard McLean-Smith and Kennedy Fisher. I'd also like to say a really big thank you to all my listeners. Thank you very, very much for listening, and thank you very much for keeping the faith with the podcast. It has been a pleasure to produce all the episodes that I have so far. 2021 has been a really good year for the podcast and I'm hoping that 2022 will be a good one too. And I hope it is a really good one for yourselves as well. Don't forget, if you would like to donate, please visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash UFOs. As I said before, that would mean the world to me. Every single penny would go back into the podcast. I am also looking for ideas as to how to take the podcast forward. So if you do have any ideas, any stories, anything, please do let me know. UFOs and other paranormal stuff is the podcast's uh, email address. Don't forget to check us out on Facebook too and Twitter, UFOs and other paranormal stuff. On Twitter, it's at UFOs and OPS. Also, if you would like my show to sponsor your product or anything you have, please do send me an email to that address as well. Thank you very much. Now it's all that's left for me to do is to say to you all a very happy Christmas. I hope that you really have a good one with family as well this time. And I hope that the new year is great as well and you have a really, really good 2022. Take care. Happy holidays, everybody. Have you done your Christmas shopping yet? Are you still looking for that special something for that special someone? That extra ingredient for a great Christmas dinner, party or drink? Are you looking for the thing that will make Christmas even better this year? If so, then look no further than Great Danes UK. Great Danes UK has everything you need to make Christmas go with a Scandinavian bang. Cozy and comfortable footwear. George Jensen designed jewellery. Eva Solo designed homeware, candles, cups, mugs, clocks, scarves, lights, gadgets, pet accessories, bags, bimble and bumble, toys, eyewear, Christmas decorations, everything you could ever want and with an unmatched beautiful Danish design. Don't forget the food and drink, salty chocolate licorice, Tom's turtle advent calendar, the vintage food grocery box, remoulade, glob mix and much more. And why not wash it all down with a nice Allborg Jubileum Aquavit, Gammeldank Stram, Blomberg Mulled Wine, Tuborg Classic and Gold Beer, Carlsberg Black Gold Beer and a soft drink for the kids. For worldwide deliveries, visit the website greatdanes.uk and get your order in today. There's also Lego of course. Great Danes, G-R-8, Danes.uk Always drink responsibly. For T's and C's, please visit the website.